Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is going on, everybody? And welcome. This is episode number 63 of Rizzo cast. I'm Steven Risotto. And today, uh, along with Jasper Lindsay, and today we are pleased to be joined by someone who spent 40 plus years covering Bay Area sports for the San Francisco Chronicle, the Press Democrat, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he's the author of Gloves Off, 40 years of unfiltered sports writing. It is Mr. Lowell Cohn. He joins the show. Mr. Cohn, how you doing? Welcome. I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so we can't wait to get into your career. Can't wait to get into to the industry as a whole. Uh, but first things first, rumor has it that you will be inducted into the Jewish Northern California Sports Hall of Fame. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, what does this honor kind of mean to you and, and how did you find out? I Well, I found out because they wrote me a, a letter saying I was being inducted. So that was easy. Um, what does it mean to me? Um, I'm really delighted. And I'm glad they did it before I died. You know, I'm 75 <laughs> years old. And I kept thinking, boy, uh, when are they going to induct me? So um, I just wish that my parents were alive, that they could know about this. It's, it's a great honor. Yeah, we mentioned your book earlier. It's called Gloves Off, 40 Years of Unfiltered Sports Writing. What was the inspiration behind writing it? And how was the process of putting this book together? Sure. I retired about four and a half years ago writing sports columns for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. And, um, you know, I'm a writer and writers keep writing. You like to write. So I, I thought, well, I could write a book of essays, things that I had never written for the Chronicle or the Press Democrat, things I couldn't write that had curse words that um, might have offended uh, people. And uh, it was really, uh, I, I guess you could say, I got off on it. I got off on cursing. I got off on telling stories about famous people that I really had never told before. And it kept me engaged uh, in, in the profession. I, when I was done with that book, then I wrote another memoir. I've written two books since I retired. And the other one was about growing up in Brooklyn and coming out and going to Stanford. Uh, that one is, is still a manuscript. I don't know if I'll ever publish it, but I keep writing because I, I, I just, Writers write, and I love to do it. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, and, and how did that kind of come about? How did you get into the industry? Um, did you play sports as a kid? And, and when, did, when did the heavy interest in, in sports uh, begin for you? When did the love affair with uh, Lowell Cohn and sports begin? You know, Stephen, I'm going to uh, actually sort of change the question a little bit. Go for it. The love affair is not Lowell Conan sports. The love affair is Lowell Conan writing. Mm. I'm a writer and my interest is in writing. I, hap I happen to have written about sports. I could have written about a lot of things. What happened was um, I came to California from, from New York in 1966. I had gone to college in Pennsylvania at a little place called Lafayette College. I came out here in 66 to go to Stanford. Uh, I, I worked on a, a master's and I did a PhD in English literature in the Stanford English department. When I was done, I knew I did not want to have an academic life. I wasn't all that good at it. Plus I wanted a life with action. So what I did for several years, I became a freelance uh, film and drama critic 
at the Palo Alto Times, which was a really nice um, community newspaper. It's defunct now. A lot of newspapers are defunct. Simultaneously, I began to write pieces that I sent into Sports Illustrated. I have no idea if anybody can do that anymore today. The upper up editors liked my stuff. And I got published in Sports Illustrated while I was you know, living hand to mouth in Palo Alto and writing film and drama reviews. At a certain point, I just sent my stuff into the Chronicle. They were looking for a sports columnist who was an outsider. I was certainly an outsider. I had never covered any sports in my life. Although when I was in, you know, in high school, I ran track, but I sucked. So um, the Chronicle hired me on a six month trial basis to see if I could make a difference for them. And I did. Uh, uh, so I stayed there. I, I was there, I think, for 15 years. Um, and at first, I was an outsider. And I was an outsider. I mean, I'd studied literature. I, I thought about games as plays. I thought about them in a different way from people who had gone to journalism school would have thought about it. After a while, you can't be an outsider forever. You, you run out of things to say. And I became an insider. And in 1995, I moved over to the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. They wanted me, I don't think because I was an outsider, I wasn't anymore. I was known as pretty controversial. And that was a New York Times newspaper at the time. It was owned by the New York Times. So in many ways, it was a, it was a really, really good move for me to be um, at, in the New York Times Corporation. Um, and that was how I got into it. But when I had applied at the Chronicle, I applied either as a film critic or a, or a sports columnist they hired me as a sports columnist because they had film critics. I could have gone either way. So again, I love sports and I loved writing about sports. But again, the key ingredient is I love writing. And if there was anything that distinguished me in my career, who knows if it did? It was probably because I was a pretty good writer. Yeah, and, and to be an insider, as you mentioned, I think building relationships is, is kind of the name of the game in the journalism field or one of the names of the game. And one of the things that, that the two of us are taught is to not be too close to your sources and, and people you cover. How important do you think that is in, in the field? And do you, do you see anybody maybe straying away from that nowadays? Sure. Okay. Um, so your teachers are teaching you not to be too close. I totally agree. I think it's really, really important. But let's define close. Certainly, you want to be close enough that you can have sources, that players will tell you because they trust you and they want the news to come out, what's going on with management, what's going on with another player. And I had that. But I never became friends because the minute you become friends with a coach, or a player or someone in the front office, you're compromised. You need to have a distance so you can be honest, not objective. I was never objective. I had a million opinions and I liked people and disliked people and that all came out in my writing, but I had a distance so I could be truthful, at least the way I understood truth. So let's say for example, Dusty Baker or Steve Young, the two of my favorites and I know them very well. If I had become friends with them, I couldn't have had any distance to say, Dusty made a mistake or, or Steve didn't have a good game. I wasn't up there rooting for them. I really liked to be with them, but I never 
had dinner with them. I never went to their house. They never came to my house. We're not friends. We like each other and we respect each other, but there was always a distance and they always knew that I would put truthfulness ahead of my affection for them. And that's what your teachers are teaching you. And boy, is that a bedrock principle of journalism. And I can't say if anybody is straying now, but let me tell you, when we'd be in a press box, if we felt that so-and-so from a certain paper was rooting, rooting for the 49ers or rooting for Stanford, we would, um, that person would go down in our opinion. It's not professional. Mm -hmm. If you become a sports writer or a sports commentator because you want to be friends with the players, go into another profession. Don't do it. Become an orthodontist and find a way to be friends with the players. Be the equipment manager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so getting into the reader's side of things, I mean, because oftentimes as a columnist, your opinion is the prime reason they read you. What do you feel the power of opinion versus summary is when a reader is reading an article? Very interesting question. Let's say instead of summary report, reporting, let's say reporting because it's reporting and opinions. They're both essential. You know, if um, Susan Slusser for the Chronicle is a very good beat writer on the Giants. She used to be on the A's. She gives you the story. Um, what happened in the game, who hit the home run, what the pitcher's ERA is, all that stuff. But, you know, Bruce Jenkins might be at the game. He's a columnist and he'll say, who expected this from Buster Posey? He, let's say he hit a home run. Um, his career seemed to be gone. And all of a sudden, so he now has an opinion. This guy came out of the ashes and he's not thinking so much about the game. He's thinking about an angle. What would be enthralling or controversial? I mean, he could say, you know, Buster Posey doesn't, even though he's having a good year, he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, unless he plays 10 more years like this, which he won't. So you, you could write that and that's provocative and people would read it. And it's a fair, it's not a knock on Posey. It's a reasonable question that people will have to um, approach at some point five years after he retires. Do you vote him in or you did not vote him in? I vote now, by then, who the hell, I, I, I don't think I'll be voting. I probably would not vote him in. So the point is that reporting and the, and the column are, are just different genres. They're different worlds. And as a, a columnist, you probably go through 15 different ideas at a game. It's like taking finals. You're always changing, you know, how am I going to approach the question? How am I going to do this at a 49ers game? I would be sometimes be exhausted at the end of the game and I hadn't written a word because I had gone through so many scenarios in my head. Wow, that, that's really interesting. And this is something that I've always thought about researching athletes that research themselves and, and you know, wake up and, and read the morning paper the next day. How much do these guys... And how much do these guys and gals actually read about themselves every day in the media? Do they, you know, do you get people that would approach you the next day and go, Hey, I, I saw what you wrote, or maybe just as your estimation, how many of these people actually do read what journalists write about them? It's an, that's really an interesting <laughs> question. First of all, they read a lot of them read it more than they admit. Mm -hmm. How could you not? Right. But the, what's what's very interesting, and this happened to me, I want to say 
dozens of times, uh, a sports figure will come up to me and said, you know, Lowell, I really don't like what you wrote about me. I, I really don't appreciate it. And okay, and I'll say, what particularly didn't you like? It's a fair rejoinder. What did you not like? Let's talk about it. And then this is the key moment. I didn't really read it. My wife told me, or um, another teammate told me. That says to me, you're complaining, but you haven't done the rudimentary work of actually reading it. So my response would always be, although I feel complete contempt inside, my response would be, you read it, think about it, come back to me. We, until then, we have nothing to talk about. That's the one that really kills me. If, a, if an athlete has read it and wants to argue, one time Steve Young didn't like what I wrote. He had clearly read it, he thought about it, we talked about it, and we talked it out. And I think he was right. I, I don't remember what the argument was. It wasn't an argument. But when they say they haven't read it, see you later. Yeah. And that happens more than you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, you alluded to it earlier, but what is so unique about the athlete-reporter relationship? I mean, in other words, like, how do you navigate athletes that kind of shy away from the media versus the ones who are more extrovert and willing to talk? Well, some you can't. Some you just can't. I mean, there are people who, I mean, Marshawn Lynch, you couldn't do it. Although when he was at Cal, he was quite talkative. Um, so there's a certain percentage where you, it's gonna, not going to work. Others, like Tim Lincecum, he was very shy and very uh, self-protective, but he's a good guy. Tim Linscombe's a good, honest guy. So if you would hang around with him, like after a game, the pitcher has to talk. Uh, so you'd hang around at his locker and eventually he would warm up and then he'd become quite confessional. Um, what you wanna do is you want, if you want an athlete to come through for you, you have to show that you are sincerely interested and you're not trying to smash them. You're not trying to sucker him in to uh, saying things he doesn't really want to say. Um, I, and they have to feel that you're legitimate, professional, and sincere. And I, I hope that for the most part, uh, I came across that way. But a lot, yeah, of, I mean, times, a lot, a lot of times, you mean, you, you get hostility. I mean, that's one thing that, beginning journalists don't understand. You go into the into a clubhouse or a locker room, they don't wanna see you. They just lost and some nameless guy comes over and I never, or woman, and I never met you before. And you're asking me, you know, when you gave up the grand slam, you know, what did you throw or, and you know, it, there can be a lot of hostility and you can't take it personally. It's not personal. You can't take it personally. You have to um, try to put yourself beyond that. But if you go in there thinking the players are going to love me <laughs> and I'm going to be friends, you know, with Colin Kaepernick, forget it. It's not going to happen. And what's more, you don't want to be friends with them. You have your own friends. Yeah, I mean, you were pretty known for your unfiltered approach to journalism. Do you believe that your personality was really reflected through your writing? Very much so. Um, I, I, you know, you can hear me. I talk with this Brooklyn accent. And one of the things that I, I worked on for 40 years was to make my written voice sound very much like my talking voice. 
And believe me, it didn't, that took a lot of work. And so eventually my writing was short declarative sentences. There weren't a lot of dependent clauses. There weren't a lot of commas um, and a very active verbs, argumentative, uh, visual, vivid. Um, and this was uh, all stuff that I'm pretty good at verbally and I wanted to be good at in my writing. And it was stuff that I worked on for thousands of hours, thousands of hours. So in my book, This Gloves Off, one of the things that people tell me when they read it, which really warms my heart, is that it sounds like you, Lowell. It's, it's like you're talking to me or reading it to me. And that's what I tried to do. I, I get impatient when I, I read a lot of fiction and when I read a novel and I, I find that there's endless description or just, you know, a sentences or paragraphs go on too long. I'm editing them in my head. You could have left out this clause. You could move on. You know, let's get on with it. And I, I'm very impatient with that. And when I read in the newspaper, um, let's say game stories, a Niner game or A's game, I, I'm not knocking anyone in particular, but I find if they load up on statistics, I want to know a story. What's the story of the game? What's the story of these people who played the game? And if they load up on statistics or they don't have vivid description of something that's after all visual, or they don't get in, talk to the player afterward and get into his frame of mind at the crisis moment, I find uh, I'm bored and disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. What do you, what do you kind of want your readers to take away from your writing? Is there anything in particular, you know, after you publish an article, after it's in the newspaper the next day, is there anything that you would have hoped that they may, maybe would have taken away from it? Yes. This was an event in my day. This was a big deal in my day. I read Lowell and wow, that was interesting. I didn't expect to have that charge. I, I, yes, I want them that. And secondarily, uh, boy, I, I disagree with him or I really agree with him, but it made me, made me think. And I guess after that, you know, he's a pretty good writer. I kind of hate his guts, but I have to admit he's a pretty good writer. <laughs> what happens is funny when I meet people sometimes and they expect me to be a certain way and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very worldly. I'm educated. I'm a nice guy. And they always say, gee, I didn't think you'd be this nice. And I thought, you know, there's a, it's hard to uh, um, know about a person's personality through his or her writing, because that's a, a persona. That's who you present. You present yourself in a certain way. It's certainly not how I present myself to my wife or my children. Yeah, I mean, do you believe that you possessed a unique outlook on the sports world? And if so, how this how did you kind of develop this perspective? And do you think you being a writer first over a sports writer really helped you build this perspective? Yeah, I, yes. First of all, I was very interested in the in the people. I was interested in developing uh, profile profiles on an ongoing basis. So, for example, probably the I mean, clearly the most important person that I ever covered was Bill Walsh. He changed football and he was a, a fascinating personality. I must've written hundreds of columns about him. I couldn't get enough of writing about his personality. He was someone who could have been in a book by Dickens. Um, he, he's that big of a personality. I wrote a book about him. Um, I, I, was, I, I wasn't friends with him, 
but I was fascinated by him. And this was because I had come from a literature background. I was always thinking of these people of how would I treat him in a novel? How would, you know, Mark Twain treat him or how would Charles Dickens treat him? I would actually ask myself those questions. So I had a, a certain um, position or view on human beings that they would not teach you, I believe, in journalism school. And, and I, I, I was not a good reporter because I never learned how to do it. I was, but I was good at these other things because I had studied literature at Stanford and at Lafayette College. Um, the, other, the other stuff that I tried to do was to look at these games as little plays because you start with a problem, who's gonna win? There's suspense. You don't know who's going, unless it's a blowout, but let's say a baseball game, they're very often pretty even. And then there's a crisis moment. You know, the shortstop makes an error. The pitcher gives up the grand slam. The guy in left field makes a great catch that saves the game. It's a crisis moment. And then there's a resolution. It's a drama. Uh, Aristotle could have predicted uh, the form of it. And I, I, I looked at sports, each game as a drama, and I tried to write about it as if I were doing a film review. Because in a way I was. And they were also heroes and villains, just like in movies. Um, you know, I don't mean that the, the guy who beat you was a villain, but he certainly ruined, you know, ruined the Giants day or the A's day. And it would be fun to talk to him afterward talk to the manager, things like that. So I looked at it as drama and I looked at them as characters in literature. And what happened was the, the people who had sophistication, Bill Walsh, Don Nelson, um, Tony La Russa, liked to be written about that way, would be interested in what I would ask them. Ah, that's another thing I wanna say. When I would write about people, part of it was knowing what to ask. You, if I were doing a one-on-one -on -one interview, I would really think about it. How do I want to bring this person out? I would want to say as few words as possible because it's not about me. How can I bring them out? And I would actually write my questions down. Even when I was a veteran, I'd write them out in longhand, maybe nine, 10 questions, and there'd be an order to them. Because one, it was like a play, a, a, a series, a play series in um, football. You know, on first down, you do this, then you go here and do that. That's how I plan my questions. Always knowing that if the subject went off in a good direction that I had not anticipated, but it was good, forget my questions, go with it. But part of writing well about people is anticipating, visualizing and hearing the interview before because if you don't have good material, no matter how good of a writer you are, if you don't have good material, you're dead. No, a hundred percent. And, and Jasper mentioned, you know, kind of the unfiltered writing. Uh, this is a question that I really want to ask. Did you ever have to apologize for anything? Cause I know, I know maybe it's not in, in, in a lot of journal, I guess nowadays journalists apologize for everything because everything has the possibility of getting, so so-called canceled. So did you ever feel like you had to apologize for anything you wrote? Wow. Um, I want to answer this well. So 
Stephen, honestly, I don't ever remember apologizing. Wow. I, I, now, it doesn't mean I didn't, mm -hmm. but it doesn't come to mind. The way I would handle it when someone would get angry, and, uh, this would happen a lot in uh, club, baseball clubhouses. You walk in and they, whoever is angry starts screaming at you in front of the team. That's the worst feeling. You want to like melt. It's the worst feeling. And what I would generally do is I wouldn't argue because I had had my say in the newspaper and I would let so-and-so, Robbie Thompson once got angry, screaming at me in front of the team. So you let him do it. I mean, it's fair. Now he's getting even. And then when it's over, you would say, okay, are you done? Yes, I'm done. I'm done. You, know? <laughs> you say, okay, I hope we can do business, business in the future. So I would generally allow them to scream at me, although I would want to cry or hide, you know, in the laundry basket and then say, uh, okay, you're done. Let's, let's move on. Stephen, I honestly don't remember apologizing. I would have to think about that a long time to see if there was a time ever. Yeah, I mean, we're t Steve mentioned cancel culture, but journalists in their own have kind of become stars today. I mean, you look at Stephen A. Smith or Skip Bayless. As one of those journalists that didn't really hold back from speaking your mind, do you think there's a limit to how much spotlight a journalist can take? Well, we're mixing our genres now. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about it. Um, I was a newspaper guy, although I was on television a lot, and uh, my son was a newspaper guy, but now he has this all this, I guess it's podcasts or whatever. He does videos for Sports Illustrated and YouTube. Um, Stephen A. Smith and Skip both started as writers. Stephen A. Smith was at the um, Philadelphia Inquirer, and Skip was, was in Dallas, but also in the San Jose Mercury. Um, and they went into television. Both of them are selling, among other things, their personalities. Skip is always yelling, <laughs> yells a lot, and he's always leaping up in his chair, you know. He's not like that at all in, per in person. He's kind of very quiet. Um, so th that's a character that he, I mean, it's a very interesting character, but he's, when I used to know him when he was at the Mercury, he wasn't yelling all the time. He was kind of a quiet, very thoughtful, very bright man. Um, I think with Stephen, I don't know Stephen A. Smith, but I know Skip, they want to portray their personality because that that's what sells, they're millionaires. Um, in, in, as a writer, you don't have that kind of um, profile. You, uh, it, you know, you're, there's, a there's words between you, there's a paper between you and, and the people who you write about and the people who read you. So unless you're on television or radio, it's a much more subdued relationship. I have seen though, when these, these quote unquote TV people come into a clubhouse, the players almost treat them like personalities, like superstars. And the, the players want to please the, like Skip or, or a Skip-like person. I don't remember a player ever wanting to please me. <laughs> Nor do I remember wanting to please a player. Now, if you're a journalist and you want to please a player, I don't respect it. You just want to do your job. I don't, I don't need to impress you or please you, and you don't need to do it for me. We're here to do a job. I feel like if somebody came up to a journalist in the clubhouse and said, 
you know, hey, did you see, or I like what you said about me. And then the, the other guy goes, oh yeah, you did. I'm going to, I'll talk, I'll talk more about you on this next episode. I feel like that would just be a, a one ticket to, you know, the end of your career or I don't know. It's, it's just not a good look. Well, if a player came up to me or a coach and said, I really like what you wrote about me, my immediately, I would immediately would think, what's he getting at? <laughs> what does he want? What's his agenda? I'm not there to make friends. And as a journalist, I was skeptical. So uh, what are we really talking about here? The other thing I always, um, always taught myself, and, and again, I'm a self-taught journalist, um, was I learned quickly that there are competing narratives. There is, let's say the 49ers, just as an example. They want you to see the what's going on with them in their narrative. Like last year, boy, we're really a good team, but we had, oh, darn, we had a lot of injuries. And you could write that. You know, oh, gee, they're a great team, but they had a lot of injuries. I taught myself, don't see and don't hear what they want you to see and hear. What do you really see and hear? What I really saw and he heard last year was, this is a team with a lot of injuries, and they didn't work it out. Why do they have so many injuries? Is it just bad luck? I'd like to know about that. You see what I'm saying? So I always put more faith in, um, what do I actually see in here, as opposed to what, I'm, what am I supposed to see in here? I have no patience for what I'm, I'm supposed to see in here. That's not what I got into it. I got into it as a, as a columnist because I trust my eyes and ears and my opinion. And I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of power. I'm skeptical of power. Is there any difference in covering, you know, baseball compared to basketball compared to football? What would you say is the, the, the biggest difference that you've noticed? Okay. It, uh, first of all, there's on the field and in the, in the locker room. When I first came up, I started in 1979. I was surprised at how rude baseball players were. I had never been in a culture where uh, people were telling me to screw myself all the time. And, you know, you'd go up to a player and say, excuse me, uh, so-and-so, what? <laughs> that used to kill me, what? Um, so I think baseball players have mellowed somewhat, but it used to be very difficult to interview them. Basketball players and football players generally are not that way. They're more hospitable. Hockey players are the best. Hockey players are wonderful. You think they're nuts because they're always hitting each other. They're the most, they're all gentlemen. But so, so in terms of human relations, I was shocked at how hard baseball players were to deal with. Okay. Um, on the field, I love football. Football is the hardest game to write. It used to make, it used to give me a nervous stomach and I'll explain why. There are so many players. There's offense and defense. So I'm sitting up there and thinking, what the hell am I going to write about? So many things happened. You know, sometimes I'd get so confused. I just write about the quarterback because everybody wants to read about the quarterback. But maybe the, the outside linebacker was more important that day. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe a certain play was more important. The world of football was so varied and so complex and so amorphous. I don't think my game, my game columns 
were generally all that good in general on football because I found my head spinning. But in baseball, there's always a moment. There's always a hero. There's, as I mentioned before, there's a crisis moment. There's a, a victory moment. There is one, generally one play or one person who is the story. So I found that very easy to write. And similarly with basketball, my, my feeling about basketball and this has come since I became an old man. I've lost interest in the sport, in, in, I'm saying NBA um, for two reasons. One, um, it's simple. Football is chess. There is so much going on. A, 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 11 players on offense, all having something they need to do and variations on that. I understand in basketball there is too. To me, football is chess and basketball is checkers. I, I don't find it interesting enough anymore. In addition, I think the three-point shot has ruined the game. I get so bored when all of a sudden they, you know, they drive down the court and some guy stops and takes a three and misses. You know what I mean? So what'd you do that for? The whole idea, you're defending a goal. The whole idea is to get to the goal and put the ball in. I don't see why you should get more, more points for a crummy shot. So I, I actually am, am kind of bored. And I can tell you, until the, the Warriors almost got into the playoffs and they had those two play-in games, I didn't watch them at all. I would rather read a book than watch a Warriors game. There you go. I mean, you've been around Bay Area sports for such a long time, but you've also been around Bay Area fans. I mean, in your opinion, what makes a true Bay Area sports fan? Here's the thing. This is going to uh, really, if I were more diplomatic, I would have a good answer. I don't have any interest in fans. No. I just don't. Um, my job was not to be a fan, was not to be a fan. I don't care what fans think. They don't know anything. They don't go in the clubhouse. They didn't know Will Clark. They don't know Stephen Curry. I'm supposed to ask, care what a fan thinks? So... I'm very happy that fans are fans and that they pay and go or they watch on TV and they argue about this stuff. I don't want to be in the argument. I, I'm not interested. I don't consider that they know what I know. I'm happy to talk about sports with journalists, but not all that much. But fans, um, I guess a good fan is you care for your team. Sometimes fans burn me up. I'm on Twitter. Um, it's, I don't get paid for it, but it's interesting. And I find that if I criticize the team, especially management, fans tell me all kind of, call me all kind of crummy words, all kind of bad names. I'm not in love with management. It's just business. Why should I be in love with Larry Bear or um, Jed York? I mean, I know them, we get along, but we're not friends. I don't, you know, what do I care? So fans do. Uh, fans support the team. I don't support the team. I, I, when I was a, you know, I'm retired, but when I was working, I got paid the same whether they won or lost. I had no interest in them winning. I had no interest in them losing. So I don't think the way a fan, and occasionally editors will say, you know, Lowell, I want you to go out and get fan reaction to such and such. I always refuse. You're paying me for my reaction. I'm a professional. I really have a lot to say. Joe Blow from Petaluma, I care what he or, she, or Josephine Blow 
from uh, Petaluma, get somebody else. I don't want to do it. That's how I feel about fans. Now, do you hate me for saying that? No, no, <laughs> it's right. It's right. And I know that Twitter could be a, a pretty horrendous place. I mean, but it's also, you know, visibly grown the industry. So when, when you made that Twitter account and, and you had to learn all the features and you had to adjust a little bit, how long did it take you to kind of under, understand the flow of how it was changing the game in, in sports media? Was it, was it just a ton of people in your replies just coming after you? Or was it, you know, hey, maybe that there's a benefit to this that I could get clicks? I mean, what was it kind of for you that you noticed first about the evolution of Twitter and how it changed everything? Um, I was not prepared for the vitriol that would come for how personal, when I went to college, I took introduction to philosophy. And the first day, the professor, Dr. Clark at Lafayette College, this is 1962, said, we'll talk about various forms of argument. And the weakest form of argument is ad hominem. And that means attacking someone personally, attacking the person, which I had grown up doing in Brooklyn, you know, your mother and all of this. And what happens is on Twitter, it's mostly ad hominem attacks. You suck, your son sucks, <laughs> you know, uh, go do this to yourself, go do, I, and I, I had no idea it would be that way. Now, here's what I do, Steve. When anyone attacks me ad hominem, including you're an old man and drop dead, because that's a form of, you know, ageism. It's a form of prejudice. I mean, I still can talk. I still can think. I just block them. I have blocked so many people. And every time I do, I love it. You know, I say, screw you. <laughs> I just blocked you. So the, 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 I think it had, what Twitter has done has made sports conversation really stupid and rude. I'm on it because it amuses me. But I want to tell you, my son Grant, he, he's on. But he doesn't care much about Twitter because you can't make money on it. He's an independent contractor. And he always says to me, I had never heard these words before, dad, can you monetize it? <laughs> and this is a new vocabulary for me. He said, you know, there's a lot of people I know who he'll say like this, you know, dad, there's a lot of people I know who cover the Niners who have a lot more Twitter followers than I do. Can they monetize them? And I'm thinking, right, what the hell is Twitter? It's guys babbling. And, and you don't, I don't get any money for it. So from my son's point of view, it's a throwaway. It's, it, it's a relic from maybe a decade ago. Yeah, and you mentioned Twitter being a big change to the journalism game, but you've been in the industry for such a long time. How have you seen it change over the years? Yeah, that I can answer. A lot of people come to me and say, gee, Lowell, you know, I've admired your writing, you know, for a long time, blah, 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 blah how do you advise me to get into the business? And Jasper, my response would be, don't. Here's what I mean. If you want to get a job on a newspaper as a sports uh, reporter or a sports columnist, newspapers are failing. It's, it's not a, um, a, 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 it's no mystery. When I was at the Chronicle, we had over 600,000 subscribers. Now I think the Chronicle is about 175,000. That's quite a loss. When I went to the Press Democrat, I think it had around 100, 110,000 subscribers. You know, up in Santa Rosa, that was a good number. Now I think they have about 40. And 
um, they are cutting people from sports departments. This is something I lived through with my son because Grant tried, he tried to get on the Chronicle, the Press Democrat, the San Jose Mercury, the Athletic, Sports Illustrated, the magazine, and he kept no, no, no. So then he finally said, hell, well, sportsillustrated.com came to him and they said, videos. If you write an article, we'll get X number of people watching. We're reading. But if you put a video with it, I think they said you get five times more. I could be wrong on the number, but I think it's five times more. So he quickly learned, I'm going to do articles, sure, but not long ones. I'm going to spend more time on video. And plus, now I can go over to YouTube with videos and make money at Sports Illustrated and money at YouTube. So what he's done, and my son's a really sweet guy, he's helped a lot of people get onto YouTube because you can, quote unquote, monetize it. You can monetize it. And I guarantee you, I haven't got, done the research, but I would think that on the 49ers beat, my son makes the most money between his videos on Sports Illustrated and his videos on YouTube. And he's on this thing called Twitch now. I have no idea what Twitch is. He does Twitch. Dad, I'm going on Twitch. You have a Twitch? Do you need to see a doctor? You know what I mean? But in any event, his whole attitude is, can I monetize it? So what I would tell aspiring journalists now, I'm a dinosaur. Don't do what I did. Unfortunately, it's not the path anymore. Do, do videos and you can monetize it. And you can do, you can attach writing to your videos as my son Grant does on SI.com. But if you wanna be a writer first and foremost, I think you're gonna have trouble. And I'm gonna give you an example. And please excuse me for going on too long. Um, the Athletic is a really worthy endeavor. The people, the, the guy who um, edits and publishes it in the Bay Area is my friend, Tim Kawakami, who used to be a sports columnist at the Mercury News. We're friends. And I have a lot of friends who write for them. Matt Barrows, uh, the Niners, and uh, Danny Brown does, uh, who was at the Press Democrat and the, and the Merc, he does uh, features for them. Well, they're behind a paywall. You have to pay to, you have to pay to get their content. In addition, it's only reading. They're not interacting. Everything now is interactive, like what we're doing right now. And this is fascinating. You guys are asking great questions. I'm delighted to be able to do this. You're doing great. At The Athletic, there's a paywall. It's reading long articles and there's no interaction. Well, I think that's an, now I could be wrong and I want these people to succeed because they're sports writers, they're my friends. I'm, I'm worried about, the, about that business model. I think a better business model is what SI.com has where there's no paywall, they have ads, just like newspapers have ads, just like any TV show has ads and um, there's no paywall and you can get people like my son Grant interacting with you. So that's how I, I see a major change in what's going on uh, in, um, I suppose there are still jobs for sports columnists and I suppose there are still jobs for sports reporters, but they're dwindling. And I can tell you at the Chronicle, they have three sports columnists, my dear friends, Bruce Jenkins and Scotty Osler, they're older. And when they retire, I mean, Scotty's just a few years younger than I am. He's brilliant. And Bruce is as well. 
Are they going to replace him? What's going to happen? Annie Killian is younger than us. Um, she's great. She's okay. But what's going to happen when those two guys retire? I really wonder. I can tell you that at the Press Democrat, they used to have two columnists. There was me and Bob Padecki. And, you know, we really worked and sold that section. They don't have any sports columnists anymore that I'm aware of that write. We used to write four times a week, each of us. I don't see anybody writing columns four times a week there. So that's another market that dried up. I know yeah. it's very depressing what I'm saying, and I apologize. <laughs> it's no worries. But I mean, so we talked about how the industry's changed, but what do you miss most about the industry now that you've retired? Writing. Yeah. Writing on a daily uh, four times a week. I mean, what a charge. If you wrote something you liked, I always tried hard, but sometimes I didn't like what I wrote. And then you could see it in the paper or I didn't live, I live in Oakland. I didn't live in Santa Rosa, but I could see it on the internet that night before it appeared in the paper in the morning or at the Chronicle, we got the Chronicle at home. I could see my name and it was big. It was like a neon lights, you know, what a charge that was. I, I loved it. So I loved writing and I loved the, the immediate reinforcement, the positive reinforcement. Boy, that's, that's really a blast. I, you can never get over it. Uh, what I didn't like was all the travel. Um, as I got older, the travel became burdensome to me. Airplane travel is tough. And going then you had to go through security after 9-11, and that was hard. And sometimes I got weary of the athletes, you know, just being so, so difficult um, sometimes. And I, I just felt I don't miss that anymore. So those are the things I, I don't miss, but the things I miss were writing a really good article and getting the instant reinforcement. It was just among the most pleasurable things in life. So do you, do you at all miss deadlines? Cause I'm, I'm right now beginning to kind of experience deadlines for the first time. I'm freelancing for a site called SF Bay uh, in, in San Francisco. And I've done a few giants games one of them in the press box and our, our deadlines are 10 minutes after the final out. And then the second deadline is 90 minutes after the final out. Um, and it's, it's tough, but I feel like it's not as tough. You know, I haven't done it for 40 years, so that's probably why. So do you miss those deadlines or those, were those deadlines tough or were they tough only if you made them tough? If you know what I'm saying. The wonderful question. I have mixed feelings about deadlines. <laughs> um, the good thing about deadlines is you knew it would be over. You know, writing after a game, especially if to be in 10 minutes after, is anxiety producing. I, I it's anxiety producing. So I would know if my deadline at the Warriors was an hour after it ended, I would know that the anxiety would end. Uh, and, and, and that was a, a good thing. But on the other hand, it caused anxiety. So I had, and I would notice that if I covered a night game, I couldn't fall asleep right away. I'd be walking around the house, maybe open up a bottle of wine just and drink just to calm down. So uh, I think the, the deadlines are kind of in a way what drove me away finally when I retired. But on the other hand, if you don't have a deadline, I could sit there for 10 hours trying to find the right verb. So you need deadlines actually, I think make you a better writer. That's what I want to say, Steve. I think deadlines make you a better writer than a worse writer because you really have to bring it and you have to bring it fast. And there are people who can do it and there are people who can't. 
And luckily, I could type fast. I think the best uh, class I ever had in junior high school was typing. I did typing and I, I could type fast. I could type about as fast as I could think. And that, that uh, and I was actually a pretty good deadline writer, meaning I could get enough words out. Not that the stuff was always that good. Yeah. And, and I want to get back to Grant. You mentioned Grant and he's kind of taken after you covering the Niners, as you mentioned for, for sports illustrated, have you, how have you kind of mentored him and, and taught him the rules of the road over the years? I'm sure he's seen it firsthand. Um, and, and do you <laughs> be honest, do you read all of his stuff? Do you watch all of his stuff? Every single bit of it? Yeah. Let's talk about watching all this stuff. <laughs> he puts up a lot of content. You know what I mean? Um, I don't because if I were to watch all the stuff, I wouldn't have a life. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> he puts up hours and hours every day. So I certainly watch what he and I put up. We usually put something up on Tuesday for about an hour. And my wife and I, she loves to watch. It's her little boy. So, you know, we watch that. And um, I do watch, I sometimes watch, he has this thing called Niners After Dark. And I watch, I don't know why on Wednesday night, I watch Niners After Dark and I watch him and this guy Vish from Chicago. I, I really like that stuff. But I have to pick and choose. And sometimes he'll say to me, Dad, did you see such and such? And I'll say, you know, sweetie, I didn't. And I can see he's disappointed. Like, if you really love me. <laughs> uh, when he was a writer, I read every single thing before he sent it in. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a really good editor. So um, I, I would, you know, try to, this is really good. If you just make these 1,000 little changes, it'll be better. And he was cool. He, he, he expected that I would suggest changes. As far as how to act, how to act with players, how to act in a clubhouse, in a locker room, he, he had, you have to figure that out on your own. He has a different personality. I'm a New Yorker. He's a Californian. He's more laid back. I'm much more confrontational than he is verbally confrontational. And he's smarter than I am. And he figured it out really quick. Sometimes he'll ask me, dad, this happened with such an, such an athlete. This is how I handled it. How would you have handled it? And we do that. But basically it was, um, he had to go in the deep end and swim for himself. Yeah. So one of me and C's favorite press conference moments came when uh, you were talking to Jed York after he fires uh, Jim Harbaugh and Trent Baalke. And you kind of ask him why he doesn't dismiss himself. No, that was after he fired um, Chip, Chip Kelly. Kelly. Chip Kelly, right. So, Kelly. I mean, tell us about that. Like, what is it kind of like just staring an owner right in the eyes and telling him, hey, you are not doing a good job with this team? Yeah. Now, again, remember, I know Jed York. I've known him a long time, but I'm not his friend. So I'm not there to help him. Yeah. He is a, a very wealthy young man. Um, he's been uh, supported his whole life by, uh, you know, a mom and dad who gave him a team that at the time, I don't think he deserved. Um, I don't have anything against Jed York, but I'm not there to ask a softball question. He had just, re let's have context. He got rid of Jim Harbaugh, who was a really good coach. Now he, he was eight and eight his last season, but still he was a really good coach. Um, and then he brought in Jim Tom Sula, who was a joke. And he fired him after a season. Then he brought in Chip Kelly, who was a fraud. Uh, I, I, you know, from my point of view, was a fraud and fired him after a season. So now he had three flops in a row, 
fired Harbor, which he shouldn't have done, hired Tom Sula, hired Chip Kelly. And he was at the press conference and I felt that the journalists were asking softball questions. Again, I understand why they do it and they're my friends. I'm not putting them down, they're my friends. But I didn't feel we were getting to the crux of the issue. And I didn't feel that Jed York deserved a break. So what you had to do in that circumstance, they have a, a microphone and you had to put a, raise your hand. And I didn't know if the PR staff, cause they, they didn't like me and they were kind of, I think afraid, but they gave me, <laughs> gave me the microphone and Grant was sitting next to me and I actually slapped his knee as I, before I asked the question, I said, watch this. I didn't say that. <laughs> And what I said to, to Jed was, you know, you just fired your uh, coach. And I think the general manager, you just fired your general manager because they weren't doing a good job. And he said, well, it wasn't really. I said, look, don't argue with me. I'm asking my question. Again, when I asked the question, Jasper, I was in charge, not them. I wasn't, they weren't doing me a favor. I was in charge. Don't argue with me. I don't know. You can see the tape. I said something like that. Let me go on. And then I said, you know, you, you're going after excellence. You fired these guys. You had a very poor record. Why don't you fire yourself? I think it was fair. Why the hell did he deserve to be, quote unquote, the owner with such a poor record? And I remember he looked at me. He wanted to, like, escape. But he, he said, what do you want me to say? That's what he said. And I said, say something like schmuck, come on. And then he said, well, you can't fire the owner, which is the worst possible thing. Meaning I'm a privileged guy. They, they granted me the team. And then, you know, and that, that's a, a very famous moment or notorious moment. I know a lot of national people uh, went after me. I couldn't have cared less. I, I don't care. I don't want to be their friends either. Um, but it was a, a key moment in his career, and it, it, it was, you know, among the moments in my career. And in fairness to Jed, he's done better since. Yeah. Um, he brought in Kyle Shanahan, who was a very good coach, not a great coach, not Bill Walsh, not George Seifert, hasn't won a Super Bowl, has blown two, but, he, but he's a real improvement, and they have a loaded roster. Whoever put that thing together, and I don't know what John Lynch has to do. I don't know how it works. They have a loaded roster with the one proviso, the caution, that gets hurt a lot. Yeah. So they have a great roster, but then a real roster that may be playing in the games, and it's not the great roster. And we're going to have to see how that works. But in fairness to Jed, he apparently has done better. They've gone to a Super Bowl since he had that horrible, horrible um time and also he hired Mike Singletary who was no good he really had a bad record and I was um not polite uh but I asked him what I considered I put him on the spot and he deserved to be and that's why I asked the question yeah absolutely and I mean you talk about Jed you're giving a stupid response there but what happens in the uh press conference room when a reporter just asks a really bad question <laughs> you'll hear snickering yeah uh, people will roll eyes People roll their eyes. And a really bad question sometimes is kissing the butt of the person that you're, you know, it's true uh, you lost the championship, but aren't you proud of your guys? What? 
And people will look at that journalist like, please just leave the room. You, you made all of us look bad, right? right. You can't have that. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And last thing before we go, um, your old friend uh, Dwayne Kuyper is dealing with a few health issues here, and we wish him obviously nothing but the best. Um, and I understand you have an awesome Dwayne Kuyper story, kind of the first time you guys uh, laid eyes on each other and, and got to know each other. Sure. First of all, um, I only know about his illness from what I read in the paper. I, I did write him uh, an email a few days ago wishing him all the best. Um, he's, Dwayne Kuyper is a lovely, lovely man. Uh, I'm wild about him, and um, I, I think all the good thoughts I can for him, and I hope he's okay, and I hope he and I can see each other someday. What happened was his first year with the Giants, and I don't remember what year it was. I have this in the, in the book. He had a bad knee, and I was I, – I think when I was a young man, I lacked a certain wisdom, which I have intermittently now. I don't always have wisdom. But I wrote that he had an 80 year old knee and why they get this guy and all that, you know, like typical in your face crap, which I probably wouldn't write now, but it was effective. So I go in the clubhouse at Candlestick and I see him talking to Daryl Evans and they're pointing at me and uh, apparently he's asking, could you show me Lowell Cohn and Daryl Evans points to me. So Dwayne Kuyper comes and he says, he was so, with that wonderful voice and that, that twinkle in his eye, he said, you know, uh, I, I, I saw that, you know, I read that you said I have an 80-year-old knee. So I, I said, yeah, I, I, I did. He said, I'll tell you why. He said, there's an old guy who's 80, and there was a, really a guy, I forgot his name, who sits outside the clubhouse. He's out there. Let's go out there, and we'll get the 80-year-old guy to kick you in the nuts, and then I'll kick you in the nuts, and we'll see who has an 80-year-old knee. <laughs> and I said, you made your point. I don't think we need the demonstration. Thanks a lot. And we became very cordial with each other after that. And uh, what he did, he did a video for my book, and he did a, a dramatic uh, reenactment of that scene. But he complained that I didn't have enough words in my chapter about him, that the incident deserved more words. So that's the story. That's awesome. That's uh, Lowell, I appreciate you joining us. This was a lot of fun. And I'm sure us, of course, us and all the listeners and, and viewers out there took a lot away from this. So I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Steve. It's nice to meet you, Jasper. It's nice to meet you. Good luck with your careers. Thank you so much. You guys could follow Mr. Cohn on Twitter at Lowell Cohn uh, and uh, keep up with his tweets there. And you guys, of course, could follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Rizzo cast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching and enjoy the rest of your day.